0: Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to see you at least pixel to pixel, if not person to person, uh, this morning. Uh, Anna referenced uh, prayer for uh, Nates as we have our ATS self-study coming up next week, and we're grateful for that. She also referenced other um things in our orbit that we would invite your prayer for and uh, the most particular of those being our son Matt who is experiencing some difficulties uh, in his uh, context in the Philippines. Uh, I won't say more about that and take any further time but if you could remember our son Matt in the days that lie ahead of you uh, we would deeply appreciate that. You know, I originally titled this talk this morning as uh, "Dieu pense donc je suis," uh, sort of a a takeoff a bit on uh, Rene Descartes' dictum "Je pense donc je suis." I think, therefore, I am. I I was looking at how can we grab hold of the idea of God thinking about us and the rest of God's creation in a way that helped us uh, in our journeys. And as I thought more about it, um, I thought in particular to uh, to engage uh, the conversation better by thinking of uh, the whole of God's creation and including the whole of God's creation. And um, and so I thought it better to say it this way. Je pense donc que nous sommes god thinks therefore we uh, are we exist and um i, I wanted to uh consider um uh, how is it that god views us how is it that god sees us um what are the ways in which um we know that god is engaged with us and if i can get my screen to function properly here uh, on my side i think we'll make some progress here uh at our best, in lucid sort of moments of reflection about our relationship with God, we might quote such scriptures as Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Or we might want to think about our origins in God's uh, economy, and we might say something about this text. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. If we think further about it, we're probably going to confront those texts of scripture, however, where God is disappointed with, even at times disgusted with, human beings. He wants to step back from his act of creation of us and ask some questions of himself. Why did I do this? Why are these stubborn and obstinate people uh, not listening, not acting as I've created them to act? And and we might want to think more carefully about how God thinks of us. And so we might say, what does God really think about us? If If we see these texts, on the one hand, talk about God's love for the entirety of his cosmos. And we quote John 3 16, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten Son. And then we encounter these texts where God's deep disappointment is evident and his disgust in some respects is evident. What does God really think about us? Now, if we're to think of this in terms of sort of the classic theological approach, um, we think about things that that lead us to uh, conversations that might pick up on these kinds of ideas about uh, the way in which human beings have acted towards one another and thought about one another, that are a reflection of our theology of the way we perceive God to think about us. And whereas the Mi'kmaq understood and experienced the land as a place indwelled by the spiritual where their Creator had regular interaction the Jesuit perceived it as Satan's land, a place of the demonic. Or we might think of it in an even more powerful and pervasive way, a land that even Satan himself had forsaken. Now, in in many respects, this is the product of a theology that we have been raised with that has a specific focus and a specific frame to it. Um, But this is what Paul invites us to, and this is our scripture text to think on this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul's inviting us to think differently about ourselves, and I believe he's inviting us to think differently about ourselves, because he has come to realize God thinks differently about us than perhaps he might have imagined. I mean, this is the same individual who thought of all that he had done prior to his conversion on that Damascus road as being dung. In fact, he used a very sharp vernacular word for that. Um, And and he thought of everything as dung, but now has come to this place where he says, oh, I begin to understand how God views me. And it's different than I had imagined. It's not this lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut experience that God thinks of me as being completely reprobate. God actually thinks of me differently. And so I now need to think of myself differently. And and he invites us to this posture of thoughtfulness about ourselves that is deeply rooted, I believe, in what Paul had come to understand about himself as the way God saw him. Now, there are numbers of ways that we theologize that lead us in one or or the other of these two directions, either to perceive that God sees us as... uh, Uh, that lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rod experience, or God seeing us differently. The first way I would talk about it is what I call deficit-based theology. It's a theology rooted in the problem of the fall and a focus on its implications. In other words, it starts in Genesis 3 and begins to articulate the nature of the circumstance in which we find ourselves uh, from that point and forward. And it's rooted in a concept of sin that is very much legally and morally framed and it's this legal and moral framing that leads us to uh, the kinds of perceptions that the church in mission had throughout much of its history about indigenous folk or other folk who were not part of the western european orbit of christianity they saw those folk as morally reprobate or as deficient in some significant ways in the way in which their societies were framed and the laws by which their societies were governed. And it comes out of this idea that we begin with the notion that God now sees us from Genesis 3 forward as being significantly deficient and the creation as significantly corrupted. Now, I know that some texts will talk very much in some translations about uh, the the fact that creation is subjected to futility. Uh, It experiences futility. It cannot be what it was created to be. But that is not an issue of how God perceives it. It is an issue of the consequence of the breach of a covenant in which it was created. And I'll have more to say about that at some point. The second way we can view theology that moves us in a direction of how do we see ourselves and how do we understand God to see us would be an asset-based approach as I describe it. In an asset-based approach, we want to appreciate or project from God's intent for Shalom, which is what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. We find there the created order existing in this construct of Shalom where all things are engaged in doing what they've been created to do from the beginning, relating to one another in the way in which they were intended to relate from the beginning. And the harmony of God is present in all because all is relating to God in the way in which it was created to. And in this sense, we're talking now about sin when we encounter it as something about relationship and relatedness, not about legal and moral behavior, because in the first and second chapters of the text, Uh, No legal or moral frame has been described or defined or given. All we have is a description of the relationship of shalom, of the peace and the harmony, the blessing of God. So what are some concerns about asset-based theology that might lead us in a different direction? The first is that we are invited in an asset-based theology rooted in Genesis 1 and 2, to a relationship with God that is right and proper. We're to be in right relationship with God and right relationship with other spiritual powers. Now, this is something that the Western church has struggled with, particularly in the last century and a bit. Um, We are in an environment where there are other spiritual powers at play. And, And I'm not simply talking about the spiritual uh, forces of wickedness in high places about which Paul spoke, but also about, uh, significant spiritual powers, those powers that, uh, are under the auspices of God's enemy and the enemy of our souls, um, spirits that are part of this creation that serve not God who made them, but, uh, the enemy who opposes God. Um, there are good spirits in the world, to be sure. And we read of them in the text of Scripture, and many of us have experienced the presence of them in our own lives. And we're to be in right relationship with those spirits, neither to serve them nor to seek to have them serve us. And the text of Scripture is clear about that. The narrative that we read pretty consistently uh, informs us that we are not to seek to serve or be served by those spirits, except as God ordains them to do so. Uh, So the first uh, concern of an asset-based approach to theology that begins to describe us differently and begins to describe the way God perceives us differently is that we are to be in right relationship with God and these other spiritual powers. The the second concern of an asset-based theology uh, is that we are to be in right relationship with one another in the human community. Our challenge throughout history has been to live with one another in right relationship and we're not simply talking about men and women together uh, as individuals we're talking about groups of people societies collections even family to family even within families we struggle to live in right relationship with one another in the human community but the invitation is there because the model is there in genesis 1 and 2 albeit a briefly described one of how we're to live in right relationship with one another in the case of our first parents um, in one and two of Genesis. And thirdly, we're to live in relationship and relatedness to the rest of the creation or uh, of which we are simply a part. Uh, the text of scripture is clear throughout, even in the uh, recording of Psalm 139 that we read a portion of, that there is this deep engagement by the creator with the creation and the whole of the creation is the focus of his love and concern. And so we're invited by our creator, by God, to live in right relationship with and relatedness to the rest of the creation that we're part of, not to be distanced from it and to think of ourselves as over it in a in a dominating, domineering, sub, subjugating kind of way, but to be care, takers and care receivers from it. And and I say both of those because the creation cares for us deeply and fully day on day, day after day. Uh, I often say to my students, uh, let's reflect on that time in human history where humanity did more for the rest of the creation than it daily does for us. And the answer to that, of course, the response to that is that it's never happened. The creation supplies for our very daily needs each and every day. And a part of our prayer, I hope and and believe will be an expression of thanksgiving for that provision. I also like to say that irrespective of whether you're a vegan, a vegetarian, uh, a selective omnivore or a full-on carnivore, each and every day of your life, irrespective of which of those you might place yourself in or any other category for that matter, each and every day of your life, something dies for you to live within this creation. Something gives its life, whether it's fruit or vegetable, or whether it's animal, bird, fish or other, something gives its life for you. And it's, it's this reflection on the fact that something provides for me out of the rest of creation so that I might have life uh, that we're invited to reflect more deeply on, so that we might live in right relationship with and relatedness to the rest of creation. And here again, the creation is not to be served or worshiped, but it is to be recognized as a part of the context in which God has placed us and which he expects us to live correctly within. Asset-based theology is concerned with the whole community of creation. You would have heard this from Randy Woodley last year. You'd have heard him talk about the community of creation and the fact that all of creation, as it did at the time of Jesus' birth, comes together under the auspices of their creator, of its creator, and sings the praise of God, offers homage to God. The whole of the community does so. It's not simply humanity, and so as we sang the song this morning, which is really beautiful. um, I I imagine the trees that I see out my window offering their praise to God today. Um, I hear the wind singing in the trees offering its praise to God. I see the snow on the ground covering the ground, um, insulating it from the cold so that the life that it nurtures uh, can be ready to spring forth in just a matter of a month or so. Um, God's concern is with the whole community of creation and asset-based theology that invites us to think differently about how God sees us and sees the rest of the creation invites us to that way of thinking as well. So God's salvific act in Christ is not simply about human souls. It's not simply focused on humanity. It's not anthropocentric. It is creatio-centric. It is focused on the whole of creation, which is the focus and subject of his activity through Christ. Asset-based uh, theology makes us aware that God does indeed love the entirety of the cosmos, as John's Gospel 3.16 tells us. Asset-based theology is also more organic and it therefore provides more effective ways for us to view the challenges of the community of creation that we encounter, particularly human ones, as we journey towards our full restoration and the full restoration of the rest of the creation. Now, what could be more evident than this past 14 months or so as we have wrestled with the transformation of our lifestyles and life ways as a consequence of the pandemic? And as we've watched the creation uh, around us um, uh, come to life in some different ways uh, the, the studies on the pollution indexes in various parts of the globe and this and the clear indication that creation is cleansing itself because we are acting differently as human beings is just such a profound illustration of the organic nature of the dynamic nature of the way in which God engages God's creation and the way in which we should also do so. And and it comes out of a different way of perceiving ourselves as human beings than that classic approach, uh, that deficit uh, theological approach has typically done. And here uh, we need to remind ourselves that irrespective of the tradition of the church that we come from or find ourselves in at the moment, Irrespective of the denomination that we worship within, the way in which we worship, or any of those sorts of things, if our ancestors of two generations or so ago were to come and visit with us on our Sunday morning worship time, uh, assuming we're able to gather together soon, they would be deeply dismayed at what they would see, because the way in which we are worshiping and living and talking is so profoundly different than it was for them. They would not be overly comfortable about many things that they would see. Um, The church is organic. Human beings are organic. Our theology needs to be organic, not not in such a way as to say all things are permissible, but to suggest clearly that God engages God's creation in new ways. Each morning is new and fresh. Deficit-based theology, on the other hand, has some unintended consequences, It's not systemic. It becomes very clear that it is human-centered and ethnocentric. This has never been more profoundly um, realized by me as when I encountered Genesis 9, probably the 300th time I read it, in the NIV, the New Indian Version, Uh, And there in chapter 9, in the four words inscribed above chapter 9 that are obviously not part of the biblical text, but put there by the translators, were four interesting words that simply said God's covenant with Noah. And then, of course, as I read the chapter, uh, chapter 9, I realized that that was at best misleading, at worst a deep lie, because God did not make a covenant with Noah. The chapter is quite clear that God made a covenant with Noah and his descendants after him, and with the rest of creation, and that's clearly made known to us seven times in that chapter. And yet the text, um, the, the four words of the text above the chapter, would lead us to believe that God had made a covenant with this individual man named Noah, and and it and it gives a lens to us if we're not careful through which we read what follows. And I would offer that that has frequently been the way people have read the text. So it's not systemic. It doesn't engage the rest of creation fully. It's also not responsive to the changing circumstance of creation in which we find ourselves. Romans 8 makes clear that the creation itself is groaning in travail. It uses the image of a woman in childbirth to bring across the point that creation is changing accommodating what's happening, but groaning all the while. Uh, It is never more evident than it has been this past year to me that the creation is changing and we need to change. We need to respond to it differently than we have in the past. Um, And deficit-based theology doesn't invite us to do that as effectively, if at all. The third thing that deficit-based theology does is it works with the same vision and methods over time. It, it invites us to take ourselves one more time around the track. And yet the writer of Hebrews is clear in chapter six that that we should move on from the basics, move on from the cycle of conversations about washings and baptisms and ceremonies um, that that may have been okay and may have served us well, but no longer are to be the focus of our conversation about maturity in Christ. So we need to move beyond that old method and vision to something that invites us to a new one. The last thing that deficit-based theology does and is clear to have done down through history is that it weakens relationships, creates defensiveness, and fosters a negative community culture. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is very, very clear about this. He makes it evident that we are to think differently about the community that we're a part of. Uh, that we are to deeply, deeply invest in the community and in the relationships of the community and to think well of one another in that community uh, and to not foster the negativity of a community culture. So traditionally, we have two options. We have the first option, which is a Genesis 3 beginning point for our theology that causes us to think about ourselves in some very particular ways. And it causes us to think about others in some particular ways. It it creates a framework for our mission theology that is a particular framework. It invites us to a particular way of acting towards the rest of the creation we're a part of in a particular way. And that is this idea that we begin with the curse. Cursed are you because. And the curse persists in our thinking. The curse persists in our theologizing. The curse persists in our behaviors towards one another the curse persists in our thinking about ourselves as human beings under the auspices of God created in the image and likeness of God. The second way we can proceed is to go to a Genesis one and two start and recognize that in the beginning, God created, and it was very good. And that's the starting point. That's the point of departure for God's thinking about who we are as human beings and thinking about the rest of the creation that he has authored and to reflect on the fact that in the future, it will be very good again. And that is the trajectory that our theology should impel us toward and should invite us to travel on. So we have two options in our way of thinking about ourselves and others in our way of thinking about the creation. And more particularly, we have two options in the way we think that God thinks about us and the way God perceives us. The one is to reside in that sense of the curse that God thinks through that lens about who we are. The other is to step back just a couple of chapters and think about the fact that God created us in God's image and likeness. And as John's gospel makes clear, loves us and the rest of the cosmos so very much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. Well, thank you.